I'm extremely excited to announce a brand new sponsor for the Behind the Shield podcast. That is Transcend. Now, for many of you listening, you are probably working the same brutal shifts that I did for 14 years, suffering from sleep deprivation, body composition challenges, mental health challenges, libido, hair loss, etc. Now, when it comes to the world of hormone replacement and peptide therapy, what I have seen is a shift from doctors telling us that we were within normal limits, which was definitely incorrect, all the way to the other way now where men's clinics are popping up left, right and center. So I myself wanted to find a reputable company that would do an analysis of my physiology and then offer supplementations without ramming, for example, hormone replacement therapy down my throat. Now, I came across Transcend because they have an altruistic arm, and they were a big reason why the 7X project I was a part of was able to proceed because of their generous donations. They also have the Transcend Foundations, where they're actually putting military and first responders through some of their therapies at no cost to the individual. So my own personal journey so far, filled in the online form, went to Quest, got blood drawn, and a few days later, I'm talking to one of their wellness professionals as they guide me through my results and the supplementation that they suggest. In my case specifically, because I transitioned out the fire service five years ago and been very diligent with my health, my testosterone was actually in a good place. So I went down the peptide route and some other supplements to try and maximize my physiology, knowing full well the damage that 14 years of shift work has done. Now, I also want to underline, because I think this is very important, that each of the therapies they offer, they will talk about the pros and cons. So, for example, a lot of first responders in shift work, our testosterone will be low, but sometimes nutrition, exercise, and sleep can offset that on its own. So this company is not going to try and push you down a path, especially if it's one that you can't come back from. So whether it's libido, brain fog, inflammation, gut health, performance, sleep, this is definitely one of the most powerful tools in the toolbox. So to learn more, go to transcendcompany.com or listen to episode 808 of the Behind the Shield podcast with founder Ernie Colling. This episode is sponsored by Newcom, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Newcom, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. 
and you can find even more information on newcalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Army veteran, federal law enforcement officer, author, and podcaster, Jason Piccolo. Now, in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics, from his journey into the military, his perspective on the war of drugs, human trafficking, terrorism, mental health, the addiction story that shook his family, recruitment, leadership, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 850 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jason Piccolo. Enjoy. Well, Jason, I want to start by saying two things. Firstly, to thank you to John Guriani, whose name I always butcher, for making sure that I soak around. Your name has been mentioned numerous times, but John was the most recent. And secondly, I want to welcome you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, John's awesome. And I'm going to be on my best behavior today. So I won't, you know, I'll try to keep the cussing down and everything else. But yeah, I appreciate you having me on, man. I love I love being on the other side of the mic more than I like being on this side of the mic though. <laughs> so yeah, me too. Now with the cussing, don't worry about it. I, I tend to swear like a sailor when I get fired up. So don't feel like you have to hold back in any way, shape or form. So where on planet earth are we finding you our afternoon today? Oh, I am a recent, I can't even say recently retired, but I'm a retired guy living outside of Washington, DC. Are we ever really retired? I mean, I'm looking at 23 years. Uh, then you tap on the the military in the nineties, like thirty years. But I'm like, I'm not stopped. Like I have all these like with side projects now. So I mean, let's just say I'm retired from making money. How's that sound? <laughs> retired from wearing the uniform itself. That's yeah. how I look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just did CPR on a plane a week ago. Oh so you know, when people say, "Oh, I retired from the fire service," like you like you said, you don't. You know, if something yeah. happens in front of you that uses your skill set, then you are going to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Well, then I want to start at the very beginning of your timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. I was born in Booton, New Jersey. And that is, uh, it's kind of famous because like it's always mentioned in the Sopranos here and there. They talk about Booton, but it's right outside of Jersey City. But I, I was born there, but I grew up in the Appalachians area up by the Pocono Mountains in New Jersey still, but in like the green part of New Jersey. Uh, two parents, uh, the nuclear family, I guess you can call it that I had, I had two brothers. My parents actually were car cleaners when we were growing up, like professional car cleaners. Like my dad would do the exteriors of cars. He'd be like the buffer, the, the wax and all the other stuff. And my mom would be like interiors. And that was one of the skill sets that gave me later on because, you know, kind of helped me when I got out of the army to clean cars. 
but I had two brothers. Um, and yeah, man, it was just you know, normal childhood, I guess. I mean, conflict. Yes. Um, getting kicked out at an early age. Yes. Moving out permanently at an early age. Yes. But I've kind of like transgressed past childhood trauma seeing as I'm 50 years old now. So uh, basic growing up. And then that kind of like my, my childhood situation kind of thrust me into joining the army when I was 20. So, you know, from there, life kind of went and here I am now. Now you used the past tense, had two brothers. Was, did you lose one or both of them or was I it did. more? I did. I, um, my oldest brother, Michael, uh, had a problem with addiction. So, um, geez, fast forward, you know, and, you know, uh, I've had a really, you know, different background than most people. And one of those, one of the parts of my background was becoming a special agent and working narcotics in San Diego. And back in 20, 2004, 2005, you know, my brother growing up had a problem with addiction. So fast forward you know, to 2004, 2005, I moved him out to San Diego to be with me, to take care of him. Uh, before he came out there, he had some heart issues um, because of cocaine and he was a boxer. So he was taking a lot of Federer at the time. Back then, everything was legal when it came to Federer and he had a heart attack. So I brought him out there and I, um, you know, took care of him and stuff. And then I was, um, you know, I'm kind of jumping all over the place, but it kind of fast forward to how I lost my brothers. I was recalled back into the U S army at one time and sent to war. And when I got back from the war, my brother was incarcerated. Um, cause that while all this was going on, while I was trying to take care of him and everything, I got recalled. I couldn't help him anymore. And when he was incarcerated, he ended up having a massive heart attack and dying. So I still have two brothers in my mind. Uh, one is living and, and one has passed. Well, firstly, I'm so sorry, and we'll 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 get into the addiction and you know the the drug issues that you saw at the border because I think it's an important story. And more often than not, it gets very politicized, and therefore nothing gets fixed. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I do want to visit that when when we get to that point. With your childhood, though, you know, when you obviously had your your two brothers with you, you talked about the turbulent times that sent you into the army. When you look back now with a 50 year old lens, a mature mm-hmm. lens, what would you say were the pros, but maybe also some of the cons that caused some of the struggles later in life for you and your siblings? You know, the, the back then it was different. I think family was different. We weren't like exposed to a lot of like, you know, for one, we weren't exposed to social media. Parents were pretty much, they learned from what they learned from their parents. And if you have two parents that come from broken childhoods, very broken childhoods with abuse and and lots of abuse, physical and mental, trying to raise children at a young age with very limited funds. Um, sometimes they don't look at everything as like a love relationship. But, you know, that changed me because, you know, growing up, I don't recall my parents saying they love me. You know, I don't recall the the hugs and kisses and, and this and that. But later on as a father, now I have 13 and 15 year old. I I really try to do my best not to expose them to like mental abuse and especially not physical abuse and to try to, you know, instill them like a work ethic 
and try to instill in them the things I've learned through my career, like, you know, seeing different things and seeing how people struggled and to say, Hey, you know what? You could struggle. You could do all this. You could still be a good person. Absolutely. I'm very huggy with my, my son. He's 16 now. My, my 22 year old bonus boy, my stepson, he's a little bit more awkward when he hugs, but uh, yeah, my 16 year old still hugs me. I still kiss him on the top of the head. Uh-huh. I think, you know, that, that is masculinity, real men, yeah. as we know, when we have a horrific call or something, you know, God forbid we lose someone. If you look at the pictures, we're all in tears and we're hugging each other. That's what mm-hmm. men are supposed to do. Yeah. I never, I never back off of being like mushy and emotional and, and watching the cheesy movies and you know my my daughter and I are watching like Jane the Virgin now and I'm like what the hell I'm like I'm watching this. I'm like I'm I'm like I'm like I'm like M that's my daughter I'm like you know macho right you know like I can shoot guns and do this and do that because you know the kids like for me being older and having kids at an older age I uh they don't know me like when I was young and running and gunning and the army me the special agent me the border patrol me they don't know that guy they know dad who like podcasts and writes and retired and just does his thing absolutely i watched the whole season all the seasons of jane the virgin because my wife loved it so i know who Raphael is and all the, mm-hmm. <laughs> all the drama so i feel oh your my pain gosh <laughs> <laughs> jesus i'm learning spanish job get my spanish back that's all that matters there we go so back to early life, what about sports? You ended up in a very athletic profession. What were you playing back then? Uh, football and wrestling. You know, I only wrestled for one season, but I tell you what, that uh, wrestling, the dynamic in wrestling and the physicality of it and the getting in shape and the cutting weight and the running were so much different than football. And I remember because like football for me was like the 19, let's see, I graduated in 91. So backtrack four years of football. So, you know, we didn't drink water back then. <laughs> it was like, you know, you have a sip of water in practice. It's okay. There, there's no like good diet. There was none of that stuff. And you don't learn that till later on. Like, you know, once you get exposed to like the muscle and fitness magazines and all the other stuff later on in life. And now we're like, like, you know, everything's available. We want to learn about that. But yeah, that, <laughs> it was a great experience with teamwork and everything. But as far as like uh, helping me out in the military and stuff, you know, I, I knew how to run. That's about it. But diet and hydration, man, I wish I knew that kind of stuff back then. I've had a lot of uh, conversations with coaches and people that were high level athletes when they were in college and high school. And I think it's getting a lot better now. But when you look back, it's interesting coming from another country and then seeing people my mm-hmm. age I'm, I'm about to turn 50 myself um and so many uncle rico stories so many i i could have should have would have been and it's because they were doing what you're talking about they forged elite performance from high schoolers and college kids with no real understanding of wellness so then yeah. you have 19 year olds with you know rebuilt acls and mm-hmm. you know slapped hairs and all these things so i'm hoping now as you said as, as this message is getting out there and uh the information is disseminated that now people are understanding maybe you shouldn't get your, you know, eight year old learning to spear tackle with a, oh. <laughs> with a helmet. Well, you know, I, I watch my son now and he's, uh, he's 15, but playing soccer for, I mean, not soccer, but football for a second year, hydration all the time, eating all the time, lifting all the time. And the same thing with my daughter who's in soccer. It's like tons of protein, 
eating right. She eats right. He doesn't eat right worth a shit, but you know, but the hydration and the practicing and practicing out of practice, you know, they're just more dedicated. I don't know if they're dedicated. They're just more knowledgeable when it comes to like, you know, sports nutrition and, and hydration and everything they need to. Yeah. Yeah. My son's a runner. So I see the same thing with, with his, you know, mentors and teachers. What about career aspirations? You mentioned transitioning into the military. What were you dreaming of becoming when you were high school age? High school, I always wanted to be a soldier and I always wanted to be a cop. So those two things. And I figured the only way to become a cop was to become a soldier. Because, you know, growing up in New Jersey was a lot different than back then. Everybody wanted to be a cop. It was so, you have a, you had a, uh, a hiring announcement back in Jersey, back in like the 90s or late 80s. And everybody and her brother would apply to it. Everybody. So you had to have a step ahead. You had to have either like military or college. And at the time, I wasn't a stellar student. I was really actually really horrible. Went to community college and failed out of that before I went in the army. So soldier and cop. Now with that lens, because when I got hired as a firefighter, for example, California, I tested against a thousand certified firefighter EMTs and mm-hmm. paramedics with ambulance operator experience, wildland experience. I mean, their resumes were fat and there's a thousand of them testing. Yeah. Um, and then here we are today. I'm leaping miles ahead, but talk mm-hmm. to me about the contrast between when you were trying to be a police officer and what you're seeing in 2023. You know, I'm glad we jumped ahead, man, because, you know, a lot of my information, a lot of my background just doesn't add up to today especially like the hiring process. Now I was fortunate enough to later on my career, like get into that, become a hiring manager, put together hiring panels for the federal system. I was lucky enough to be in there, but finding quality can, let's just, we'll stick with federal now and then I'll jump into police. But in the federal system, it is virtually impossible to find a huge candidate pool. That's going to be relevant to your agency. So my last agency was the Environmental Protection Agency. I've worked with um, Homeland Security, DOD, Army, CID, and a bunch of different agencies over the years. But my last one was a headquarters position with EPA. Now, to me, if I'm a hiring, if I'm the person in charge, I'm going to want to put my hiring announcements and say, hey, look, I want to hire someone who wants to be a special agent investigating environmental crimes. But the problem is you can't find people like that. The other thing is you're not looking in the right places. So you have these people that get to these senior levels and they're like, well, just put out a hiring announcement and we'll get a thousand people and we'll figure it out from there. And then I guarantee you out of everybody that's been hired since I started um, with the hiring manager and everything else, even though I, I said, Hey, you know what? Put a few questions in there, like about their relevant environmental background or anything like that. Um, most of them come in there, they get their 1811 series, which is a criminal investigator, special agent for the government. And they move on to another agency within a year. One that they want to. So like when you were talking about like the firefighters being certified, well, they're getting their certifications. They're getting their 1811 or graduating FLETC federal law enforcement training center, and they're moving on. And that's what people are now, if you want to get hired as a cop or this or that, it's really pick and choose. I mean, if you're, if you're qualified. So let's say you want to be a cop in XYZ. And then this is a funny story. I'll tell you. I, um, so I retire and then I'm like, hey, you know what? I still want to give back. 
So I still want to be in, have my foot in. So I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll become a reserve cop. So I go to Washington, D.C. Because I'm like, that's the only one around here where you could be armed and not just be like, you know, the crossing guard type person. So I go down to Washington, D.C. And I'm like, huh, I'm 50. Let's see if I can still pass a PT test. So I do the PT test. I pass. And then, um, which is, you know, for me, it was like, hey, you know what? That's one accomplishment as it is. If I don't make it eventually, that's good. So I do the PT test. I do the whole hiring process that day. And as I'm sitting in there, when you're going to become a reserve or a volunteer, you're in there with the same people who want to become regular cops. And I just sat there and I'm listening to them. And you had guys and girls coming in from like Wisconsin, coming in from all over the country to be a big city cop in D.C. You know, for one, they want to be a cop. They want to be in a big city. Maybe they don't like where they're living. And then you hear about them and like you listen to them talk. And I'd imagine it's the same way with anybody in the, in the protector type industry where like, you're going to be like, you know, on the streets, whether it's fire EMS or anything. And you just listen to them talk and how they're so excited and how they're really, really want this job and that excitement in their voice. And they're, they're not jaded yet. They're not like, they're not broken. They're not, self a lot of times people will get into these careers because they want to be that you know they see these movies and they see the john mcleans they see the movies and they're like i want to you know it's us against them and i'm on the streets you don't know what i see i see things you can never imagine but here these kids are and they're like and i call them kids because i mean shit they're 30 years younger than i am but to see that excitement and to see that they actually want to do it for the right things and everyone like i can't wait to get the badge can't wait to get the gun so i could pull people over and blah, 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 or bust bad guys. It was always about just, I just can't wait. I can't wait to give back. And you was listening. You're like, wow, this is really cool, man. The job is dead is to a lot of those guys and girls that have been in for three to five years, not quite what they want. And they're like, they're looking for that, that greener pasture somewhere. Or it's for the people that have been for a long time. And the job really is dead to them. You know, their management and everything else. They look at the management and they see those people. We've all seen those people, all of them. One of the, I'm not going to mention names or the agency right now, but one of the agencies I used to work for, one of my classmates is in charge of it now, the whole agency. The guy literally worked one case, went to headquarters a few years later, and now he's in charge of the agency. And you know what? He'll, he's went in and listen, he was in the academy with me. He'll probably retire in a couple of years and he'll get that lucrative corporate gig, just like all of them do. You look on LinkedIn and you see all these formers and stuff like that. And you're like, huh, now they're making three, four, $500,000. And you're like, and the way they got to that position, the way they, a lot of these people get to this position is, you know, they, they played the game. And a lot of times they don't, when you're playing the game, you don't look out for the, the lowest common denominator, which is those people just getting into the agencies, becoming the cop for the first time. You know, the first two or three years, they're like, oh, wow, I'm really excited. And they, they work. They're, they're proactive. They're like, yes, yes, yes. This is awesome. P- give me any hours. I'll work any hours. And then the realization comes in like, I could work all these hours. But Joe Schmo over there who came in the same time as I did, who's sitting just parking his vehicle, who once in a while sees a chief and says, hey, chief, what's going on? Let's have a good conversation. And he's all proactive around them. And he's taking all these extra courses and all this other stuff. And he's like, he, he's dead on a job. 
but he's going to re- him or her is going to rise in the ranks because hey they're they're not going to co- make any waves you know it's all about making those waves and it was the same thing in the military you know i left when i was a captain and i resigned right away when i got back from the war you know i was enlisted in the 90s i knew i would you know i wanted to become an officer after i i got out but when i when i got back from the war i was a captain i was like you know what i could stay in i can go in the reserves but i'll never maybe make it to major, but I'll never go past major. And I didn't have those aspirations because I would never play the game ever. And that's the same way with the government. You know, I, I got to a certain level. I was a GS 14 step nine when I retired and I was acting 15 for a long time, but I never played the game put in for a million different promotions, but I, I, I just didn't play the game and I'm not going to blame it. I'm glad I retired as I did. And I'm glad I had the career that I did. And my life isn't over. So, you know, I know I, when I walked out, when I retired, I walked out on my terms. I left on my terms. There was no big parties for me. There was no plaques. There was no nothing. I didn't even get a pizza party. It would have been cool if I got a pizza party. At least every day I got a pizza party. But nothing, man. I, you know, about a month ago, I got a, a big certificate. And it was signed by the EPA administrator. I was like, oh, wow, this dude sent me something. I'm like, that's cool. But my my bosses could not wait for me to leave because I wouldn't play the game. I'll never play the game. Well, you're preaching to the choir there. I'm, uh, <laughs> I think the last place I worked, they were glad to see me go because I'm, you know, made a lot of waves. But you, you, you know, you make waves because you see the ship is sinking. You know what I mean? So you're trying to catch attention before something really bad happens. And what we did for a living um our own lives the lives of the men and women we serve with and the lives of the people that we serve are you know at risk if we don't address complacency you know overwork I mean, all the things that are detrimental to us you said something about the recruiting i just want to hear before we move on again you said we weren't looking in the right places i have seen some incredible mentorship programs that i think really address you know the the missing bridge between the gap mm-hmm. even even in the diversity space there are underserved communities where oh, yeah. there are barriers to entry i can't afford to put myself through you know police academy i don't even have a, a vehicle to get there etc cetera, etc cetera. so what's your perspective on bringing more great young men and women into our field i am um, you know i one of my friends is a, a local policeman and they're trying to they're trying to go fed right so all of a sudden they get a call from uh, health and human services and the, the, the guy pulled her, pulled their resume from somewhere and said, Hey, you know what? We, we might have an opening here in this big city. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to throw them under the bus, but I should, but they're like, Hey, we got this. If you can come out here next week, we'll interview you. And they're like, well, how am I going to get out there? Well, you know, I've got a guy coming from Colorado. He's, he's paying his way. And they're like, they're a local officer and they're making, you know, 20 something bucks an hour. And this guy wants them to fly thousands of miles away, get a hotel, take time off from work and then pay $2,000 or whatever it's going to cost a short term notice to fly out there and hotels and parking and everything else you could possibly imagine. And this is the modern day. This is six months ago. You're telling me you can't just do a Zoom. You can't do everything local. The barriers to recruitment, a lot of times, are location. I remember years ago, 
years ago, I, I put in for a job. I think this was 2009. And I had to fly my own way out to Detroit from Philly. And I had to fly and I had to go here and there and everywhere. But hey, you know what? At the time, I was making decent money. I was in the government, you know, Fed government. But when you're looking at these local departments, and I've heard people making like $13, $14, $15, $18 an hour, and you expect them to fly XYZ to become a Fed. And because this, this guy's mentality was, hey, you know what? If you really want the job, you'll sacrifice. This guy, who's probably a 13 or a 14, making a hundred something thousand dollars a year with his take-home car, who hasn't had to do shit except, you know, sit on his ass, is like expecting people who are make barely scraping by to come out there and hire for an agency that may not be on the top of their list, but hey, they want to get their foot in their door and they want to affect change. That's the same thing with a lot of these other barriers. Hiring takes too long. I was fortunate enough and like I like to toot my own horn once in a while is I took a, what they call a Lean Six Sigma course when I was in when I, in the government, which means I know how to like take bullshit and make it quicker. So I took our hiring process and it was, it was at one time, it was almost a year to get hired. And I, I scrubbed it down to 90 days from the time we got the certification list to the time we can actually hire them was 90 days. I mean, did I stay in that position? No. As soon as I got out of there, everything started ramp. You could see that the timeline going up. But if you are trying to get into a law enforcement position, it's got to be quick. Yes, you have to do background investigations. And yes, you have to do medicals. Yes, you have to do certain things. And this goes for other protectors type jobs. You when you're getting a position of trust, you're going to have to be, one, you're going to have to be able to pass a physical test. And that means everything. Can you hear? Can you see? Et cetera. But it doesn't have to be a year. You know, most federal hiring now, and, and this same friend is going through all these different hiring processes. And I'm seeing it a year, a fucking year plus to get hired. That is absolute bullshit. And then the, <laughs> I love bagging on the FBI because their PT tests on face value doesn't look hard. But let's say you're an average person and you're doing a, a push-up, sit-ups, sprint, 300 meter sprint, and then you're running a mile and a half. Hey, you know what? I was in the army. A lot of people were in the military. A lot of people are physical. But the reality is in the FBI, I don't think you're ever going to have to. I mean, you get on a violent crimes task force or something like that. Yeah, you might do a sprint here and there. But if you're losing a huge portion of your applicant pool based on a PT test, Maybe you should really adjust your PT test to what an actual special agent does. And I know this is going to rub people the wrong way, but the reality is I always think about this and it's not a conspiracy theory. It's this. What if someone is super smart, excellent interrogator, they can analyze data beyond belief and they could have prevented a 9-11, but because they didn't get hired, they ended up in somewhere else doing something else. The reality of law enforcement is once you get that pin, that badge and gun on, look in your ranks. Before you bug on me, bag on me about the entry level thing, look in your ranks right now and look at some of these people. If you're going to hold these people to a standard initially, then hold them to a standard throughout their career. 
or look at what your job is. The Federal Bureau of Investigations and a lot of these other Fed agencies should not be busting down doors. They're going to have to. They have SWAT teams for that. Every FBI office has a SWAT team. Are they going to be assigned to task forces? Yes. Are, are agents going to be here and there? But if you have people that are just absolutely brilliant, but they can't sprint 300 yards, but hey, they can run a mile and a half. They can run 10 miles. They can't do 50, 60 push-ups, but they could do 40. They can't do 60 setups, but they could do 55. When they're running that sprint and they're missing it by a second, and then they're out of the door, now you know that's one applicant. When you look at these applicant pools now, you're like, huh. I mean, yeah, they they might be really physical. They might have a cool education, but some of them are just dumbasses. And the real, and you can't be a dumbass when you're when you're trying to put really evil people in jail. I know I'm on my soapbox now, and I've had my two cups of coffee, but it's like <laughs> it just it, it enrages me sometimes when I see like. Like some of these hiring processes, you know, DEA, I can see like DEA, every DEA person, they're always, they're on a street, they're on a street when they're GS 13s and stuff like that. Some of these other agencies, like, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's frustrating sometimes. Well, to pivot slightly, because obviously in the fire service, you know, we, we are expected to do a very, very physical job and it may not be every day, but you know, like I always say, how would you feel if your family died because the firefighter wasn't trained and they just, you know, gassed out halfway up the building to go get your your loved ones. That being said, though, where I think it's insanity and we lose a lot of good candidates is firstly the background check. Like, what is that thing? Where's that threshold? Of course, there are certain crimes where it's like, absolutely, you could not be a firefighter. But there's some, it's like, okay, well, you were young, you know, you were a mm-hmm. little bit silly, you were experimenting, whatever it was. Is that, you know, I mean, most people that go into our professions are not exactly studying the Bible for the first 18 let's, years of their life. Let's 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 bang on the FBI for a minute here. Oh, and <laughs> I went through the background investigation for the um uh for DC police too. I'm still going through the process with them and geez, that's been a while. But I'm still going through the process with them and their background was real more intense than than I have with the feds. Polygraph, background, everything. But they got their they got their stuff down. But let's let's bang on the FBI real quick. CBD oil, people admitted to having massages or given or, or having a CBD gummy or something. And let's say it's just regular CBD. It's not like THS and infu- THC infused. Or it's, it's just crazy. But because they were exposed to THC, boom, they're, they're disqualified. Come on. Ridiculous. I mean, marijuana nowadays, what's the, I, I want to, you know what, when we get off here, I should write an article about like, the thresholds for federal government. I mean, like, seriously, I mean, like the problem is there's a lot of archaic people who are writing policy and there's a lot of policies that are archaic. You know, one of my last jobs was policy, you know, and and one of the last things I actually worked on was policy. I got a presidential management fellowship and I got shipped over to DHS for six months working on policy, but it takes so much to get a policy changed and so much, approval things it takes a year or two to get a policy approved so if your old policy was from 1975 was you could you can't do any marijuana you can't do this can't do that 
how many candidates are we losing because at one time they did marijuana? Listen, I grew up in the war on drugs, man. I mean, Nancy Reagan said you crack is whack and all the, I don't know if she really said that, but you know what I mean? Like if you do, if you do, if you do too much marijuana, you're going to kill a family. You know, it was like the Mansons. All they did was smoke marijuana, but, but that's how marijuana was viewed in the eighties. And it's not like that. Should you be smoking marijuana and be a cop or be a fed or anything? I don't know. That's not my purview, but should it disqualify you for doing it a certain amount of times? I don't know. I mean, you have to look at these policies and be like, we might need to change some shit around here. We're not going to get anybody on these jobs. The right people on these jobs. That's the things you need people who could think and they aren't drones. They, they need to have their own brain. You know, when you, a lot of times when this happens, you've seen this, you could have a, let's say you're, there's a firefighter who's just absolutely kick-ass. This guy, know what this guy or girl looks at something. They know exactly what, what way to enter, which tools to use, which that and everything else. And it, because they got that off of experience, they went through the same training as everybody else, but their experience and their, their aptitude to learn puts them at a different level. Same thing as a special agent, same thing as a cop. Everybody learns. Some people stop and they're like, eh, I'll just be over here and I'll be mediocre. But those, those certain few that go, huh, I really want to know this job. I really want to work. I really want to affect change. I really want to do the absolute best I possibly can. They're always trying to learn, whether it's paid learning, they're online learning, they're on YouTube, they're learning, they're doing everything they can to be the best. And they are the best. They're five, six years into their career and they are the absolute top notch. They're the ones that are like, huh, I think I know where this terrorist, I know, I know how to, I know where this guy lives. I know how we could find them or, or this drug organization or this pedophile organization or this or that and everything. They know exactly what to do. They know who to talk to. They sit and they know. The problem is when these senior managers look at it, they look at them as a number. Ah, that guy, or girl wants to leave. Screw it. We got another one. We'll hire another one. We'll hire another one. And they're gone. You lose that. You lose your top tier people because for one, they want to be appreciated. They absolutely want to be appreciated. And anybody who says they don't, listen, if you're proactive, you're going to have some sort of a little ego. And that ego could just be as much as this saying, hey, you know what, Jason, you did a damn good job there, man. That's it. I don't need cash awards. I don't need certificates. I don't need pizza parties. I don't need shit. But if someone just pat me on the back and said, damn, dude, good job. Respect. Respect the people that work for you, work with you. You know, how many times have we seen a, a chief or a manager never go in a field? When was the last time one of these directors got in a field? It wasn't just for like a photo op. Or if it wasn't something that was easy for them, you know, yeah, you can see, I love when headquarters people from like DC are in the field and they'll go to the local field office. Well, if your local field office isn't a real snapshot of what your agency is, if your agency is a border agency and you're going out to the field in DC or, or you're Florida or somewhere that's not like the Southwest border and you're not going out in the middle of the night, two or three o'clock in the morning. And waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen in the middle of nowhere, or it's just you and maybe one other person. Are you really getting 
an idea of what your people are doing. If you're the FBI director and you're rolling around with uh, eight HRT guys and tactical vehicles and you're going to visit somewhere, are you really getting a pulse of what your people are doing in New York City? You know, are you honest? And I'm not saying like, hey, you know what? Yeah, some people, some of these administrators and some of these higher ups do this. When was the last time one of your command staff went out in the field and reported back on the reality of what's going on? Or, hey, how about this? How about you find out who these proactive people are out in the field and you get the you get a back brief back on them and not penalize them for speaking the truth? I hate that word penalize, huh? You know, <laughs> penalize, penalize them. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. Um, the other thing on the hiring process that I think is is lunacy is the polygraph. And again, we're talking about firefighters now. A lot of agencies do polygraphs, and it's just simply to get you to say, like you said, I did CBD. All right, you're disqualified. Um, and then there's the Minnesota, I always get the name wrong, but personality interview. Oh my gosh. Questionnaire, whatever <laughs> yes. it is. And all the psychologists and psychiatrists have had on like, dude, that was never meant to be a standalone test. So you've got no. these two that also disqualify a lot of great candidates that are absolute bullshit, just smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. I had to do my psych. And um, when I did my psych for DCPD, I had to do like the, it was like, okay, a lot, four hours to do this psychological battery. And it was all those questions again. I'm like, man, I haven't done these for like 30 years and I'm going through it. I'm like, how many people? And then when you do the actual psych, it's like, they just ask, basically they, they flag some things where you might've said something and they ask a few questions. But I think about that. And I think about the polygraphs I've taken probably eight or nine polygraphs throughout my career. And it's just basically like, why? I mean, any, and for me, someone who's probably interviewed and interrogated a few people here and there, when I have some guy or girl sitting on the other side of the box and they're asking me questions, I'm like, seriously? I mean, I, I, I'm one who doesn't really believe in a polygraph at all. I think there needs to be other, other methods. And all it is is really just if you're on a box and you lied on your application, you admit to lying, hey, you're done. Don't lie. Just tell the truth. I mean, I don't know, polygraphs to, to discount so many different people for that. There's got to be other ways that are more yep. relevant. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about going to the military. So talk to me about where you found yourself deployed, because I know you were part of an unusual conflict that a lot of people on here weren't present at. Uh, was that the the war on drugs? No, just kidding. <laughs> we'll get to that next. <laughs> no, because it's funny, because in college... I used to, in the summers, I used to cut weed for the Minnesota National Guard counter drug program. So I would literally be out there with weed whackers and machetes, like cutting just massive weed, feed, uh, weed fields like marijuana, because they used to grow um, for hemp back then. Um, they used huge hemp fields, but there, were, there was also grows and stuff like that. But yeah, the, my conflict, I was in Iraq in 06. So, and when I got recalled, I was shipped all over the place, but then I was eventually, because I took a 40 hour course on anti-terrorism, they, uh, they attached me to the combined joint special operations task force as their anti-terrorism guy. So basically there's any anti-terrorism force protection measures. I would have to approve them for all the special forces guys in, in Iraq for that time period. 
So something I always ask people that when they're deployed, um, it's a two-part question, but the preface is this. The average civilian, especially here in America, gets a very polarized view of war. And right now is a perfect example. Are you, are you Palestine or are you Israel? Pick a side. But usually it's, you know, are you very pro-war or are you very anti-war? These are the two kind of conversations. In the middle are the men, women, arguably children that we send overseas to, you know, fight for our country. So firstly, regardless of the politics that sent you to Iraq specifically, was there a point where you witnessed things where you realize, okay, there are some horrific people that need to be taken care of? Oh, absolutely. There's true evil out there. And that's just not just the, the military. It's just in life, you see these people. Yeah, there's there's absolutely people that need to be taken out of the picture, taken out of the variable, whether that's through incarceration or through uh, through wartime means. Now, conversely, something we also don't really hear, what about kindness and compassion? A lot of the times, tarring with the same brush, we're at war with Iraq, we're at war with Afghanistan. The reality is we're trying to find the extremists in those countries who are also terrorizing terrorizing their own people. So were there moments of kindness and compassion, whether it was with your, your fellow soldiers or some of the indigenous people you're working with? There's absolutely compassion. Everybody you see, you know... <sighs> Service members, service women, men, women, soldiers, Marines, sailors, you name it. There are bad apples everywhere. We've seen that Abu Ghraib and, and other different places. But 99% of everybody, and this includes law enforcement, 99% of everybody has compassion. You know, it's not about the let's go out there and kill civilians and, and kill animals and do this and that and destroy everything. It's absolutely compassion. I mean, I can't see anybody that's really just psychopathic warmonger that wants to destroy everything. That's a big misconception when it comes to like, you know, when you put the uniform on, it's like, I remember when I was a kid going to a recruiter's office and you see this person with a uniform on and it could have been like a transportation dude or, or whatever, but you think that, oh my gosh, they probably know how to kill you 10 times. But the reality is it's not about whether they can kill you 10 times is about like, are they really good at their job? If they're an infantry person, are they really good at their job? If they're transportation, are they really good at their job? The killing is just one part of, of conflict. And it's not the whole part of conflict. Does everybody want to go out there and, you know, search down to destroy evil? I, you know, I think 99% of the people in the military would like to see evil destroyed is there true evil out there yes but there's also those same 99.9 percent .9 people have compassion for the civilians they encounter and for just their fellow human beings it's not about death and destruction so through your maybe eyes just, oh i'm sorry man i stepped over you please i was just saying maybe that's just 50 year old me now reflecting back on my life but no it's just yeah so why do you think, or, or how do we get to the point where on our news stations, and I will argue Fox, CNN, same exact thing. I know, you know some people watch one more than the other, but it's the same blueprint these days. It's fear-mongering, it's opinions, mm -hmm. it's not news anymore. How do we get to the point where that 1% seems to have the microphone so often and project that 
you know, we are racist, we are anti-Semitic, we are, you know, Islamophobes, whatever the fucking buzzword of the day is. I, you know what? I'm glad I am so glad you brought this up because, you know, I've back in the day, I would be on Fox TV and like my Facebook memories pop up all the time. I'd be on Fox like every week talking about the border every week. I think I did 20, 30 appearances on Fox. And then later on, when I retired, I actually went to work for a news corporation that told me I was going to be doing investigative reporting and more like AP Reuters. And it was all just everything is fire. Everything's a soundbite. So here's how it works when you go on a Fox or, you know, if you're like a, you're a guest on Fox or, or one of the other agent uh, news uh, places, because I did like Fox and I-24 News Nation. I did a whole bunch of them. Uh, but Fox was pretty notorious for this back then for me. I don't know how they are now. They'd find a, a fiery report or they'd find a news article or they'd find or I'd give them an opinion piece. Say, hey, here's my opinion on this. You guys want to talk about it. And I would give them bullets like the night before. And I would say, OK, this is what I want to talk about. This is my knowledge. These are the facts that I know. I don't like to talk about opinions. I like to talk about the facts that I know. So I would go and I do my research and stuff. Some of the guests that get on there. It's all about fire and, and brimstone. It's all about, you know, blah, 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 blah. Damn this, damn that, you know, you know, he's blah, blah, blah. But I found that the more I did those types of news things, I became a soundbite. And then they would take like a sentence or two of what I said, and it would be all over. It would be in newspaper articles. It'd be here and there and everywhere. So then later on, I was lucky enough to start doing court TV where I could actually talk about my opinions and things and that. And it was facts. And it was all about court cases and stuff. But I remember I took a course, and I think it was in high school, or maybe it was community college, before I went to get my other degrees. And it was about advertising. And, you know, you can, hey, look, Sarah McLaughlin, I'll, I'll give twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of dogs all day long after I watch one of those commercials. That's why you got to turn them quick, because that's compassion. That's the, you're, bring your heart and soul. Advertising for news is all about fiery rhetoric. It's always about fear. Every single thing is about fear. The more fear you put out there, the more echo chamber you put out there, they're not winning over other, other audiences. It's all about the fear. And I noticed like I later on, like, you know, I pursued getting into investigative reporting, you know, post-retirement and I can't find an organization that is middle of the road. I can't find one. I try so hard to like find anywhere that would take me that would let me write shit. I'll write for free, but it's just like, it's always either really, really right or really, really left. The ones in the middle are still skewed one way or the other. And it's always about, well, you know, they're not, they're not interested in, and knowing about truth and facts at all. And, I, and I, that strings us into politicians as well. How many congressmen do we have? A lot. Congressmen and women. We have a lot, right? Um, but you only see the same handful, the same 10 or 15 all the time. And my viewpoint on them, and I'm glad we're talking on your podcast because I typically leave politics and everything out of mind because... I should talk more about it, but how many politicians are looking for that next career? Are they looking for their next book or they're looking for their next whatever? And that's on both sides of the aisle. 
I don't know, brother. I mean, it's always about fiery rhetoric and, and it sells. It's, I think, harder for us. And I, I say that because if you're a military member, first responder, you truly are putting other people ahead of yourself and your family are. Your family, once you walk out the door for 12 hours, 24 hours mm -hmm. for a wildland deployment, whatever it is, a military deployment, and they are holding the line so that you can go protect a complete stranger. And so then when you watch this division and this self-serving narcissism that we see, you know, because it's not politics. This conversation is about fixing a broken issue. And the broken issue is the way that we even choose these fucking people in the first place. Because I've said this a lot, you know, you've got to be a millionaire and you've got to be devoid of ethics to actually succeed in this, you know, so that eliminates all good leaders. But um, but yeah, so but for people that really understand service, I think is even more jarring for us because we know good leaders and we know Mm -hmm. that you know the obesity epidemic and the fentanyl crisis and the suicide um problems that we have i mean so many things the the lack of education and driving that causes you know tens of thousands of deaths on our road every year these are real issues that are snatching mm -hmm. lives and destroying families and yet you know some fucking dickhead's email account or someone else's you know buying shares or whatever it is like these people should never have been there now we're spending millions of dollars of tax people pay us money to so-called investigate these people and it's just this you know this vicious circle and meanwhile it's distracting every from everyone from the real issues like for example why do we have gangs so prominent in our streets why are so many of our children shooting up schools i mean these are really uh -huh. important conversations and the moment you have that oh that's political that's what we use now to disarm a real conversation. You say, oh, it's political. No, it's not. It's it's altruism caring about the welfare of your fellow citizens. Let's talk about mental health. I mean, 99% of the stuff going on out there is mental health. And you could, I mean, seriously, like when we talk about trafficking, when we talk about gangs, we talk about this, we talk about that. It comes down to like, you know, parenting. It comes down to mental health and it comes down to a lot of other different variables that aren't just political. And I'd say most of it isn't political. I mean, there's this, it's, I just, I can't even imagine like what these politicians are thinking and what in law enforcement, it's like, it's so reactive, proactive is out the door. Politicians all about what's going to get me that sound bite. What's going to get me on the news. What's going to get me that next you know, influx of money into my districts. What's going to get me reelected? And that's why I'm like, hey, you know what? I'll put it right out there now. Term limits, 10 years max, if that. You know, you shouldn't be a career politician. It shouldn't be a career. Because you become jaded and you become like, and then your staffers end up doing everything. Oh, <laughs> Well, that's a good segue. We're talking about mental health. So you have an interesting perspective from cutting down hemp early in your life to then ultimately working the borders, you know, federal police, et cetera. One thing that I have witnessed during my career um, in uniform over and over again is the epic failure of the war on drugs, drug prohibition. And through my James Gearing's paramedic firefighter eyes, I've watched addiction 
cause incarceration, cause, you know, gangs to swell, mm-hmm. prostitution, homelessness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I was very, very lucky to interview the guy in Portugal who spearheaded decriminalization of addiction. And it's funny because people think of it, oh, we tried that in, you know, in Seattle. We legalized. No, 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 you didn't. Mm-hmm. This is actually taking a lot of money, creating mental health counseling, addiction counseling, job creation first, and then decriminalizing addiction. So people that you found with the, you know, like a week supply at most, and then sending all your resources to shut down the dealers and the smugglers, opening up prisons, opening up, you know, law enforcement resources, etc. That is my personal opinion. You have a really interesting journey from, like I said, having a sickle in your hand, cutting down leaves as a college mm-hmm. kid to the other end of your career. Talk to me about your perception of the war on drugs. If you're not a fan, what do we need to do? It, it comes down to addiction, you know, and I looked at I looked at the war on drugs differently just because of like, you know, my my family and losing my brother to it. But I was in I was part of undercover groups. I was part of practical groups or like each week we get like 5,000 to 20,000 pounds of weed from tractor trailers to hundreds of kilos of coke to this to that and everything. But it all comes down to supply and demand. But then it also, and part of that demand is it's all the demand is addiction. We don't address addiction like we need to. We look at it as a social problem and, hey, just throw money at it. We'll put a couple of clinics up here. We'll decriminalize things and, and see where it falls. But it's not our problem. It's not our problem at all. No. How come we don't have a complete agency that's just, that's all they deal with is addiction? We have health and human services, which who knows what they do. But I mean, when it comes to actual addiction, it changes with administrations. A lot of people don't realize that like when, when you get a new president, all your senior leadership for all of these agencies has political appointees in it, has people directed that are politicians essentially in charge of them. So every administration has different people and different, different ways to handle things. So you could have like those people we we're talking about before who know their job and know this and know that and know everything. A new administration comes in, they put them in the back burner and, and it doesn't get solved. There is so much to addiction that it just, it boggles my mind because one thing I did, and this is one of the stories I try to get told through the news outlet was the fentanyl and xylene, xylazine crisis going on in Philadelphia. So after I left the the news organization, I went to Philadelphia. I talked to the the director, the executive director of their high intensity drug trafficking area for that region. Sat him down, did a podcast with him, and then he brought me down to like pretty much ground zero of fentanyl and and the xylazine problem. And if people understand that fentanyl is an opioid, so Narcan and everything works, but xylazine is an animal tranquilizer which prolongs the effects of fentanyl and there's Narcan doesn't work. So you're seeing people like just dying on the spot. You're seeing people who like their skins dying. I mean, it's, I've never seen anything like it coming from like the, the, the entry point of narcotics and everything in San Diego to the end state of like somewhere like Philadelphia and seeing what's going on in Philly. And one of the people I talked to was a drug abuse counselor there. And he's like, look, man, everybody's it's there's no cops in that whole area uh when kensington 
Philadelphia, at least not during the day. And when you walk around there, it really is like a zombie land. And when you see the people just, you see the humanity in him. A lot of people like to look at addicts and think of them as just zombies and, and they're not real people, but they're, they're humans. They're human beings. They're someone's brothers. They're someone's sister. They're someone's daughter. They're someone's son. I mean, they're human beings that are addicted to something that they can't get over. And yes, you might be Johnny alpha and be able to be like, I'll kick anything while you're going home and you're drinking like, you know, eight quarts of booze a week. And you know, you're doing steroids up the ass, but Hey, you can kick anything you want. You do that. But then you look at these people on these, on the streets of Philly. And you're like, I talked to the council and he's like, look, these people aren't going to get arrested. They're going to get, three meals a day if they want them and they're going to get everything they need. They're getting everything they need right there. They're getting the drugs. They're getting food. If they want housing. They're going to, you know, people are going to put them up in some housing. So it doesn't stop them from being an addict. And they said something that was alarming to me. And I really want to follow up on it about these insurance companies that would come down there and they'd pretty much scoop up these people and they'd send them to quote unquote rehab or something like that, collect the money, and then they'd ship them back, but they can only use them once. I got to look into that because I don't know the facts around it, but it's a money-making machine. So when you have addiction counseling and when you have all these other things, it's a profit-bearing business for someone. People don't just, yeah, you're going to find the moms and pops out there and these, these people volunteering and stuff. But the big picture is a lot of these addiction places, it's a profit-bearing business. So how do you wade through all of it? How do you get rid of the dirt? I, I don't know. With your brother struggling as long as he did, um, was he getting his drugs from the illicit drug trade or was it something that he was being prescribed? No, it was illicit. He was, uh, first he was, he did cocaine and a fetter, which killed his heart. <clears throat> and then later on he got addicted to crystal meth. Uh, but when he was incarcerated, he was straight. I, I talked to him a few times. I actually talked to him once, but his letters he was sending to me, um, he was he was finally breaking his addiction, you know, and he was finally at at a point where you know he was good to go, and he was about to get out. I think in three months, uh, the jail wasn't monitoring his heart at all, and they were letting him play basketball, and uh, basketball is a very exerting sport, and he just he he dropped dead. And over over Thanksgiving, I was driving by that same jail, and you can see it off of the off of the um, the highway. And it's the first time I looked down there, and I saw the basketball courts. And I go to my kids, I'm like, you know, I'm not being grim, but I'm like, you know, that's where your your uncle passed away. Actually, I said that's where your uncle died. And I explained to them how everything happened. You know, because you have to have these difficult conversations with your kids. You have to be able to talk to them, because if not, they're going to be like, oh shit, I can do whatever the hell I want. He started off with marijuana, uh, eventually started getting in Coke. Um, then it turned into crystal meth. And then he's dead, 42 years old. And he's eight years older than me. So I'm thinking to myself like, shit, you know, I've outgrown my brother by eight years. Yeah, horrendous. So well, what isn't... are we talking about that's positive? Holy man. <laughs> this is gonna be well, like we're gonna get to Oprah that because I think free, you're gonna start making me cry over <laughs> But I think this is this is the point though, isn't it? This is these uncomfortable conversations. But going back to the illicit side, and I want to get to the border next, but what was so 
encouraging this is the positive side about portugal is now get your brother for example an addict they're struggling at the moment they reach out for help they get arrested because it's a crime what you're doing is criminal and then you get incarcerated now you come out and now you've got a, a record as well so now finding employment is even harder so by removing that stigma again as an addict not smuggling not not selling and actually getting these people the help are you going to get everyone of course not and this is what kills me about solutions in in you know the states and some other places in the west they're like oh well there was that one guy so we're not going to do it it's like yeah but what about you know it's like welfare yes there are people that abuse welfare mm -hmm. everyone listening has been on those calls escalate on the front drive you know yep. no food in the fucking fridge for the kids but how many people has welfare helped get back on their feet mm -hmm. you know all these things so this is what i think is is another part that's untold of the decriminalization story is imagine if you didn't have to fucking hide in the shadows when you're an addict and buy from criminals and play russian roulette what was even in that pill that spliff whatever it was that's the other thing now you put them in the hands of the medical community and i, I agree with you completely you have to then get rid of the scumbags in the medical community, but you put them in a trusted community that will help so many of them transition from addiction back to being a functional member of society. Because I couldn't agree more. Every single, you know, homeless person, addict, prostitute or sex worker, they were all giggling toddlers once. All of us were just they their mm -hmm. path took them in a very very different place than ours did and i agree with you some people were like well i kicked you know whatever well, good for fucking you then start helping some other people but i think this is what's you know to add some positivity some of these systems work and they take people from the streets and they put them back in society where they're working and they're happy and they're not stealing and they're paying taxes this is what we want for our country you said it right there paying taxes i mean the reality is when it comes to money and it comes to getting help for these people, someone somewhere is going to be like, well, the only way we're going to do this is if we're going to get something in return. Is that really what they're thinking? I don't know. The jaded part of me thinks some of it. But yeah, you know, I like what you're saying there. It's like, think about it this way. You're playing Russian roulette, and probably the first time someone introduced xylazine with fentanyl was like, huh. This is one way to get more people addicted because they're going to be like, okay, well, if they're going to do the xylazine event, xyl, um, and fentanyl, they're going to be like, well, they're going to get a longer high. They're going to want more of it. They're going to come back to that. They're not going to go on to another drug that's longer. And it's the same way you don't know what you're getting. I mean, what are these people stepping on all this stuff with? I mean, what is in it? What are the long-term effects? So there's got to be some way to regulate it. There's got to be some way to to get people off of the addiction. That's not just legalize it because you legalize it. That's not going to do shit. Not at all. You can legalize it, but the people are still going to buy the drugs from the, the bad places. There's got to be a way to wean them off of the drugs, but there's also got to be a way that people want to be weaned off of the drugs without getting the mental health help that they need and having them take that step they're going to be stuck on the addiction cycle. Mm -hmm. I mean, it'd be great to say, Hey, you know what? We're just, all we're going to do is just, we're going to wean them off it. And they're going to be good to go. It's a long-term situation. It's long-term care. It's not a one-stop 30 days in, you're going to be good to go. It's got to be long-term. There's got to be other ways to affect it. We throw so much money at counseling and, and this and that and everything else. 
maybe there's a miracle drug that gets people gets away that mental addiction. I don't know. There's got to be other ways, but just legalizing it doesn't work because the addicts are still going to need money to pay for it. And they're still going to have the bad people out there selling it. Supply and demand. Well, speaking of that, so in Portugal's example, um, you know, they, they did have a huge success. And I think that you got to understand that an addiction is just filling a void. So that's where the mental health conversation comes in. So I think, you know, yeah, just legalizing it, you're missing the point. It's like giving someone with mental health issues, you know, psych meds. You're just numbing the symptoms. You're not fixing the actual root cause. But optimistically speaking, again, with you having worked on the border, if we were able to mitigate our horrendous addiction problem and put it back in the hands of the medical community so people weren't going to the illicit drug trade and we were getting a lot of people healed and back into the world and the ones that did need you know obviously opiates and some of those things that you know we have uh, alternatives to uh, with to wean people off what impact would that have on the crime the other side of the border going south Oh, they'll just find other ways to to do to do crime. That's why human trafficking so and human smuggling is such a huge profit bearing business right now is because it's easier to move a body than it is to move product. So that they'll just find other ways to and other illicit means. Or they'll, you know, they'll if they're gonna if you legalize drugs, they're gonna get into that business. Believe me, they're not gonna they're not gonna let that business go. And you're not gonna be able to like build that product base here in the U S legally. And you're still going to need tons and tons of product. I mean, there's, there's no way you're going to be able to regulate so much. I mean, yeah, marijuana is slowly getting legalized and slowly you're starting to get dispensaries, but when it comes to the hard stuff, I don't think that'll, that'll ever happen. And if it does, it's not going to be decades. It's going to be decades from that because everything's going to be so regulated. You know, you're talking about like, you know, Marijuana is, eh, it can be deadly. I don't know how, I mean, you have to take a lot of marijuana, but when you're thinking about like cocaine and meth and all the other hard drugs, it's going to be tough to regulate that. You think it would have an, I mean, to me though, if you cut the snake, cut the head off the snake with supply and demand as it is now, surely it would have a positive impact in maybe, I mean, the cartels how they are now, obviously so far gone, but the next generation coming in, I mean, I, I would I would assume it would have a positive effect and maybe even, like you said, shift yeah, some into a more legitimate but, business. But cutting off the head of the snake is virtually impossible because it's like, what are they? The old Captain America is like a Hydra. You cut off one one's head and there's a million other ones there. Just like gangs, you can cut off one leader, but there's someone else going to take their place. Well, when I say cut off the head of the snake, I mean removing the demand. So we, for example, consume 75% of the world's opiates. Mm -hmm. If you could address mm. the addiction issue, then from a supply and demand economic oh, yeah, model. Yeah, yeah. But how do you do that? I mean, how do you, I people. mean, you would literally like, you would literally have to throw all the resources you have at it, which I think you should. I mean, think about opioids, man. Holy shit. How many people have died from opioids? Yeah, you could find these companies a billion dollars, but hey, you know what? Maybe not throw the whole government resources at it. If you have like these big farmers that are like making billions of dollars, maybe you regulate that a certain percentage has to go to addiction counseling. Maybe you 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 pass a law where it says, hey, you know what? Um, we've discovered 
that your product has been uh, the cause of eight to ten percent of of addiction. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to make you use a certain percentage of of your profits that are that can be taxed too, because people will just be like, "Oh, it'll just be a tax write off for them to have to deal with addiction." And not just like a happy-go-lucky, we're going to start a center somewhere, but like a real one. There's got there's other, you know, the private sector, and that's like the whole military-industrial complex. It's the same thing with Big Pharma and everybody else. It's like there are billions and billions and trillions of dollar businesses. Hey, have them give back. Wouldn't they do that with the cigarette companies, though? Wouldn't they, mm-hmm. there are extra taxes for exactly that to put back into the healthcare system? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... Yeah, there we idea. go. Wait, we're boom. There it is. We we solved the crisis right there. There we go. I mean, I think this is the thing though. It it's gonna be hard. But as you say, choose your heart. Are you gonna yeah. pour resources and have to you know think tank and really change things and say you know what we did the best you know with the knowledge we had, but we were wrong. We're gonna change it now. Or do you want to watch the streets get more and more dangerous? You know, and and homelessness get worse and worse and worse, and the border crisis get worse and empower even you know more extremists from coming through i mean it even it's funny how many people now not early in the podcast but about three or four years ago starting to say oh yeah there were opium fields all over Af- um, mm-hmm. afghanistan and that oh, was yeah. funding terrorism mm-hmm. so we are a consumer that is causing so much damage so i think that we do need to put our big boy pants on funnel a huge amount of money and resources and like you said bolstered by the companies that have profited you for know, so many years the only way to do it is through through politicians. And you know, that's the other thing is you have to talk to these politicians. They're the ones that seen it need to sit down and put their big boy pants on and say, you know what? I'm not here for the fiery rhetoric. And I'm not here to be like, I'm going to actually have to like work with the people from the other side because nothing is getting done. Zero. My very short limited space in the city, uh, the news organization had, I was able to go and watch some, um, watch some uh, politicians work, quote unquote work. So I went to a couple of hearings. They roll in for five minutes. They show up their, their, their whiteboards and they, they bust on each other. They get a soundbite and they leave. They don't watch the whole hearing. They don't care what the witnesses or the experts say. They're only there for five minutes and they move on. That's it. If people knew what the, what the real deal is with the politicians, they only want sound bites. It's the same people, all the same people jump on these committees so they can get their sound bites and get their donations. And their wife or cousin can write a book, and that book makes billions. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. just, it's such a corrupt situation that that's where the only way you're going to be able to affect change is through pass, passage of law. You wrote a book, Out of the Shadows. So while we're on the, the border conversation, um, I've had had an amazing woman, Tamia Naj, who was from Hungary and she was trafficked into Canada. I've had Nick McKinley on a couple of times from um, Deliver Fund. And it's been interesting. A film came out that not that long ago. A load of people jumped on a bandwagon, seemed to kind of dramatize, you know, what human trafficking was, arguably damage it through, you know, my eyes as far as the the message and the reality of mm-hmm. what most of us should be wary of. You obviously have lived experience and you've written a book about it. So talk to me about your perspectives of that and how, especially with bearing in mind it's first responders listening, a lot of them, um, you know, what are some of the the myths and some of the things that we should be um, 
yearning for when it comes to education and and uh, uh, information, so we can actually be part of the solution. You know, the movies movies are great. I didn't watch that movie, and I know which one you're talking about because it does over glamorize it. It makes people luck out to be heroes who may not necessarily be heroes, and and it's just yeah, trafficking internationally horrible, absolutely horrible. What one thing I've learned over the years is domestic trafficking. Domestic trafficking is everywhere in every state, every locality, everywhere. It's probably right down the road in my own my own neighborhood. The adage of some guy rolling around in a van and grabbing a kid and taking him and trafficking him to some foreign country from Saudi Prince, it's not a reality. And maybe it does happen, but maybe it's the, such a minuscule like percentage that it doesn't really reflect. And as horrible as it is, it doesn't reflect what what trafficking really is the cargo containers of slavic women coming on ships it's great for the movies i mean listen liam neeson has a particular set of skills he can go out there and do whatever the hell he wants but the reality is it's grooming 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 we talked about mental health before there's a lot of kids out there who don't have parental guidance at all they don't have any parents they're basically growing up on their own. They're abused. They're bullied. They're this or that. They're looking for something. And there is a guy online or guy and girl online right now looking for something. Oh, I had a rough day today. Oh, this sucks. Boom. That's an opening. They go in there they start hitting them up on a DMs and they play the long game. And they're doing this to five or six kids at a time. And they're, they're like, oh, yeah, you had a really rough day. Oh, you should do this. You should do that they're grooming them they're building trust with them they are experts at building trust they're expert interrogators they're expert interviewers they're just as good as law enforcement because they what they're doing is they've become experts this is their business and it's a lucrative business if they traffic five or six girls and boys but we know the majority is girls a week. And what I mean by trafficking is they're selling them for sex and and, and Nick you had Nick on before it's industrialized rape they're selling them for sex and they're making thousands a week. One or two people are doing this. This isn't like these big, massive criminal organizations. And yes, there are big, massive criminal organizations out there trafficking, but the majority of it is local, homegrown. It's right there. It's in your neighborhood. It's happening. And these are those difficult conversations you need to have. Hey, you know, someone slides in your DMs, block them. Someone does this, you may want to look out for this. They pull them into these situations. And when they get to a certain point with the grooming, they meet in person. Maybe when they meet in person, they run a train on them and they video it. And by running a train, I mean, that means a group of people have sex with that person, that kid, that child. They take videos of it and say, hey, you know what? You tell anybody, we're going to put this all over the internet. Or they go, hey, you know what? You're fucking ours now. If you say a goddamn thing, we're going to kill your parents. We're going to kill your little brother. We know where you live now. We know everything about you. We have pictures of them. We have pictures of you. We have their social media. We have your social media. We know exactly who you are. We'll kill you. We'll kill them. We'll show these videos to all your friends and all your family. And by the way, if you kill yourself, we're going to kill them. You work for us now. This goes on. Hey, you know what? You're ours. You get this tattoo. You do this. You do that. You're going to hold this phone. Nobody knows about this phone except you. 
and me. And when we call you, you're going to come and you're going to fuck this guy or this girl or whatever. And you're going to give us the money. That is trafficking. And it happens all the time. Not just during a Super Bowl, not just during big events. It happens daily. And it's, it's a gross reality. These girls, and I say girls because that the reality is it's mostly girls, later on can go on and become traffickers themselves because they're groomed into it. They know the life. And that's the other thing is like people are always like, well, I'm, I'm a vigilante. I'll go to hunt down and shoot and kill criminals and blah, blah, blah. And it's, do you even know how to identify them? If you snatch a, a domestic victim off of the street, they are so ingrained in that trafficker's life that they may very well just go right back to them. And oh, by the way, because you did that, law enforcement has no clues, no nothing. If you want to stop it, find out how you can stop it. Work with your local organizations. How are you helping the victims become, you know, and that's one thing about Nick's group. How do you help these victims become thrivers? How do you help them get out of it? How do you help them get out of the life? Yeah, you could snatch them and you could help them. You know, you can put on your Johnny tactical gear and supposedly knock down doors and do this and do that. But how are you helping them live after they got out of that life? That's the reality of trafficking. If you really want to help, you really want to find out what your local politicians are doing. I talked to the people here in Virginia and they blew me off. I, um, when we talk about international and about the children coming across the border, I testified in the Florida grand jury last January and the report just came out literally yesterday about how the, how children from, from foreign countries are getting trafficked through the border and getting used and abused here in the U S nobody knows about what's going on. They're not looking at it. They're not holding their politicians accountable. They're not holding their council people accountable. They're not holding anybody accountable. Does your law enforcement have the resources to go out and identify victims? If you have an agency with 10 people in it and they're all uniform and they're rolling every day, 24 seven, do they have time to even identify, identify, trafficking i don't know i mean that's the thing is like put the resources where it needs to be put and help out where you can i think that's one of the reasons why the film was popular because then you can put it back into well i'm not a you know spec ops guy and i don't have access to go overseas and snatch someone up and bring them back but the uncomfortable conversation is, as you said, and Kara Smith's come on, you know, talking about the whole kind mm-hmm. of online thing. She's excellent with that, too. Every single one of us needs to be vigilant as parents, obviously, but also as first responders. And I look back, I've yeah. talked about this in the past. There was one call I had, a benign call, really. It was a, a medical call for a, a young woman who was, you know, a sex worker with a cocktail of drugs. So I'm doing this whole journey up there and trying to basically save her life, which we did. But years later, I look back and go, ah, you know, now with this knowledge, that was definitely a trafficking situation. It was about three women, if memory serves you right. There was a dude kind of lurking in the back, obviously a pimp. You know, this is and and I never followed up with a conversation with law enforcement. And sadly, we weren't talking about it then. We weren't having the training and we weren't really. You know what? You know, brother, I wish it's not law enforcement's responsibility all the time either Too. think about you as a first responder. And think about your contact with them. They are more likely to tell you 
than they would any cop any day. Yeah. You're not going to put them in cuffs because a lot of times what there happens too is like, you know, back in the day, I mean, think about how many prostitutes are actually really trafficking victims and they get arrested and they get abused. If they come to a fireman or fire, how do you call it? Fire person. You know, I'm trying to- <laughs> you say fireman or firefighter, firefighter, firefighter. If they come to a firefighter or an EMS or anybody and they're like, Hey, look, uh, I'm not feeling good about this whole situation. I'm, I'm, I'm doped up. I finally have a clear head. I want to get out of this. How can you help me? And you're like, well, dude, I'll just call the cops, man. And it's like, the cops like, I don't know, dude, let's call the FBI. And the FBI is like, oh, you know, call Homeland security and Homeland security goes, oh, dude, we only deal with international stuff. You call, um, you call the, the locals. And then it's like a big cycle. Everybody's working their own little jurisdictions and nobody wants to work together. And nobody understands though. And that's where training needs to come into account. Maybe we have like just trafficking one-on-ones. Maybe we have experts come in and be like, hey, you know what? Or maybe they don't even have to be quote unquote experts who are getting paid a million bucks. People who know what the hell it is come in and say, hey, you know what? This is what you need to look for. And this is what you need to be cognizant of. Absolutely. Well, I want to hit one more topic and then we'll go to some closing questions. Again, some fascinating conversations with some different people, terrorism. So, you know, the obvious one is, you know, jetliners that are hijacked and flown into our buildings here in the U.S. But then we have, you know, the Boston bombings and then it goes down to, you know, random stabbings and all kinds of things. So in 2023, 22 years after, I would say, arguably America's biggest wake up to, you know, terrorism, something I grew up with because I was uh, in the U.K. with all the troubles in Ireland going on. And they were blowing up our men, women and children back then. Talk to me about the threat. Is it, you know, is it, a, is it an international focus? Is there more of a domestic focus now? I've had some interesting perspective from different guests. So what, what's your, if you, if you could impart some wisdom for people to be aware in, in 2023? You know, we've always had domestic terrorism. If you look back in the 1970s, we had our own problems. We had so many different bombings, pipe bombs, different bombings in every city and all over the country. A lot of, lot, a lot of domestic terrorism. International terrorism, We everything and anything comes through the border. They're here. I love to tell people about vetting. They're like, well, we could just vet everybody coming through the border. I'm like, here's a reality of vetting. And I want everybody to understand what vetting really is. If you've never been encountered by law enforcement or the intelligence in our country or in a foreign country, you could do all the vetting in the world and nothing is going to raise a red flag. You cannot sit down and interview and interview and then slash interrogate everybody coming from a special interest country coming through our Southwest border or North Northern border or anywhere. You literally don't have the resources to do it. The trained professionals that do it. You don't have the resources to do it. You could send Joe Schmo officer agent through a training course and they're still not going to be an expert. This takes years to become an expert at vetting. And what I mean by vetting is you put someone in there and you interrogate them, you interview them, you figure out if they're here for nefarious means. And by the way, if they say they're here for nefarious means, good luck trying to get an asylum officer to sign off on that. Vetting only works if someone's been encountered by law enforcement or intelligence or has some sort of red flag in their system. But that's the reality is you have millions probably now 
of people from different countries who just quite frankly don't like the West. And they've grown up in a different set of moral and a different characteristics than we have. And by characteristics means they want to kill you because of, of your religion or whatever. Is it domestic as well? Yes. There's people that just hate feds. How many people hate the feds want to see everybody fed die or whatever? How many people hate cops? I'm sure there's organizations out there that hate firefighters. I mean, there's always someone that hates someone else. But the reality is vetting is just, it's a myth. Unless you put the right apparatuses in place. And I, I believe me, back when in my career, I've written letters to Congress. I've worked with Senator Grassley's office and told them about my ideas about vetting at the border and interagency coordination. We are now back to, in my opinion, we are now back to pre-9-11 interagency coordination. The biggest failure we had in 9-11, in my opinion, was that the intel community wasn't talking to law enforcement. Law enforcement wasn't talking to intel community. Now it's the other way around, too. It's like intel is not talking to anybody. But interagency, we have FBI not talking to HSI, Homeland Security Investigations, not talking to anybody because everybody has their own little kingdoms. So that's my, my little soapbox. Well, we see that even in the fire service. And I've talked about this a lot. We are so siloed, you know, and we have a, and I'm using air quotes, union. But in 2023, mm-hmm. that union also consists of the Black Union, Hispanic Union, the Women's Union, the, you know, yo-yo champion union whatever the fuck union people <laughs> want in a pigeonhole but and so we've totally lost the ability to use the word union we're not unified at the moment and we should be you know uh, yes of course there are times where people have done bad things to certain groups and that needs to be remedied period point blank but the unification of a profession is so important for communication and you have cities and counties fire departments that don't talk to each other each one thinks they're the best fire department that's ever existed you have police and fire not talking to each other And all that does is negatively affect the people that we serve. So King for a day, how do we fix, you know, obviously your world, all the, all the letter agencies, how do we fix it to get people communicating again so that hopefully we can avoid another catastrophe? Get rid of the budget accountability when it comes to like, okay, your agency has X amount of cases open. That means they're doing great. It doesn't mean shit. Just because an agency has X, Y, Z number of cases open or they're investigating so many different people doesn't mean that they should be like the the premier law enforcement agency that's going to be given all the funding. Everybody's fighting for a piece of money. When they made Homeland Security, I was was initially a U.S. Customs Special Agent. Our money for informants and everything came from seizures. But when when they made this conglomerate Homeland Security, they took away the seizure funds. So then everything ever since then has always been like, we need to get our money. We need to get our piece of the pie. We need to work on whatever the flavor of the month is, whatever Congress is going to approve us. If Congress says, hey, this month we want to work on trafficking, we're going to give all the money to the agency working on trafficking. But what about the other ones that are working on such and such? And everybody's fighting for the same piece of the money, the same piece of the pie. And they're not working together because you know what happens when you work together? Nobody shines. That's why, and I hate to keep busting on the FBI. That's why when you see the FBI, they always throw up. They have the best raid jackets in the world. Everybody recognizes the FBI symbols everywhere because it makes them recognizable. Whoever their PR machine is doing a hell of a job. 
because they're attached to every case, whether or not they actually did anything or not, and they're getting the budget for it. But there's a lot of different organizations out there, a lot of different agencies and departments doing really good work that aren't recognized, and they're doing it with very limited funding. But you have to break down these barriers. You have to flush flush these people out. If you've had someone in the same position for 20 years in law enforcement, time for them to go. 10 years, time for them to go. They need to move on. You shouldn't have an FBI director for more than five years. Move on. It, you know, same thing with all these other agencies. You don't need division directors in there for 10 years. They become jaded. They become in their own little fiefdom and they don't want to raise any, anything that's going to like break up their little fiefdom. And that's what you have to do. You have to have the right people talk to the right people and not be all about the fiscal money. And yeah, the reality is they need money to operate, but bad people are here. Terrorism didn't stop. People still want to kill us. I'm I'm starting to sound like a a fear monger here, but that's a reality. Yeah, there's a difference between fear mongering and, and just being aware of the dangers. One more King for a Day question. When it comes to law enforcement, there's so much focus on what our officers are doing wrong, and you never hear why are the streets of LA, New York, Miami so dangerous, but Reykjavik, Lisbon, you know, Oslo, we don't have gangs of kids just murdering each other on, mm-hmm. on the street corner. When I look at the border crisis, I can't help but ask the same question. What is it? about other countries that are driving so many people into the US. So king for a day, what could we do proactively, whether in our own country, again, being consumers of of drugs, for example, or other countries assisting other countries so that we don't have so many people flocking to our own? Well, there's a PR machine. This has been going on for a decade. It said, if you get to the US now, before immigration reform is ever passed, if it ever is, that you'll have a foothold here. If you get a foothold here, then that gives you some sort of pathway to citizenship or you know, permanent residency. The PR machine, the public relations machine in Central and South America is absolutely unbelievable. They're like, get north, do it now, and nobody's going to stop you. So we need to figure out a way to stop that PR machine and work with those countries to keep the people in their own countries. Because right now, it's like, hey, why not go to the US? It's a lot better than this shithole I'm living in. Nobody's going to stop me. By the time I see an immigration judge, it's going to be two years. So, hey, at least I'm here for two years. Maybe we'll pass immigration reform. And by the way, I'm here for two years, so I can appeal it. So that's that's my king for the day is we need our own robust PR machine for Central and South America. Beautiful. All right. Well, then your most recent book is Unwavering. And, and correct me if I'm wrong. Is that a, a second edition? Have you revised that one? Uh, Unwavering is my definitive edition. I like to call it. It's kind of like my memoir. And about my background, my life, my whistleblowing, my this, my that, and about my perspective on different things I've seen throughout my federal career. So what made you write it at the time that you wrote it? I wanted everybody to kind of get a perspective on what it's like to be on this side, to be in law enforcement, my perspective of the border throughout my career. And I can tell you right now, I don't think I made a dime on that book. (laughs) I pretty much priced it at cost. Um, cause it's more of like, just, Hey, you know what, here's a reality, what it's like to work for the government and to work drugs, to work human trafficking, work terrorism. 
Yeah, I think anyone who writes a book thinking they're going to make a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> my first one, I made a little bit, definitely covered my costs. But yeah, uh, the, yeah, it, it's a, a misnomer. I think a lot of people I know that have got the larger publishers, you know, they, they're still paying them back years later. Mm-hmm. So, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't write a book. Just don't write it to get rich. You'll be disappointed. Well, I appreciate you having me on, brother. Yeah, well, thank you, mate. So um, firstly, where can people find the book itself? Uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble online and then uh the more the one thing i'm more proud of than the book is i have a foundation called the protectors foundation and it's pretty much about what we talked about it's about these law enforcement agencies out there and eventually it's going to get into fire who don't have the resources for training and equipment some of these officers some of these some of these people out there right now these detectives or anybody these departments have no money they're making 13, 14, 18, 20, $22, $23 an hour. They have to supply their own gear, their own equipment, et cetera. And I'm soliciting donations, not from, you know, people I know, but from corporations and businesses out there. I'm a dedicated 501c3 and all the money goes to, you know, operating it and getting the equipment out to these people. I shouldn't say operating. That means like I'm taking money. I'm like, no. So I got donated um, $500. So I went out to North American Rescue. I bought $500 worth of tourniquets. I'm going to be finding a stop the bleed courses for local departments. And I'm going to have them each given a tourniquet when they go through it. Because some people, maybe if they're lucky, got issued a tourniquet. Uh, so then it'll come down to like, you know, firearms training, mental health training, and everything else. So that's kind of protectorsfoundation.org. And you can find me on Instagram at, at Dr. Jason Piccolo. Beautiful. And then what about the podcast? Where can they find that? Oh, the Protectors Podcast. We're 470 episodes in now. You're coming on soon. Yeah, that's everywhere, man. And geez, man, that podcast is blowing up. I love it. Um, kind of the same type of premise we're doing here, but more of a conversation about just different things, different perspectives, and different people, man. And I've had every New York Times bestselling thriller or author on there you can imagine, but I've also had Medal of Honor recipients. I've had anybody you could possibly imagine because I just like having conversations. <laughs>